0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com.
2: everyone. Thank you for joining me. Today's topic is going to be on the role of mold and uh, chronic illness. And I'm going to try to give you some basic concepts and reviews, maybe for the first 15 minutes, and then we can take some questions um, as we kind of cover the things I know that a lot of people have questions with already. Now, mold is one of these things that um, there's, a, there's a, some issues with it and some concerns with it as far as what's available for the healthcare system and what are patients face when they have a mold-related illness and so forth. So First, basic concept is that mold uh, releases things called mycotoxins, or aflatoxins specifically, is one type of mycotoxin. These compounds tend to Trigger an inflammatory uh, response in, in some people. There's also various things that may have an impact on how severe the reactions may be uh, for one person or next. So, one principle is not everyone has the same reaction to mold exposure. And part of that could be due to what's called immune tolerance. Um, I've written several articles about that um, on my uh, website. Um, Dr. K News, drknews.com, and that's associated with how your immune system is fit to react or not react against an environmental pathogen, the integrity of the lung barrier, and also that there seems to be some genetics involved why right? some people react to certain uh, uh, mycotoxins um, from mold than other people. Now, one of the key things that I think a lot of practitioners face, a lot of patients face, is the frustration of why doesn't anyone know how to treat mold? And why am I, if you end up with a mold toxicity, or um, let's say illness from mold would be a better word to use, why am I having a hard time getting anyone to believe me? Why am I having a hard time getting any kind of care? Well, there seems to be, well, there, there is a research gap between what practitioners see and what's been published. So to be quite honest, there, there really aren't a lot of great research studies out there. It's very clear that um, mycotoxins can cause human illness. But as far as how to diagnose it, how to treat it, how to manage it, what kind of strategies to use, there isn't much published on that. So I think for even, you know, for the average physician that's looking at uh, what's been published in the evidence-based medicine, there, there's a gap there. So it's not like everyone's ready to jump on board because, you know, to be quite honest, the people that work with mold uh, on a regular basis haven't done a lot to publish about it, and there, this isn't in the area of, of a lot of out of research enthusiasm right there. So we have this gap, like we don't have any clinical trials of how to effectively treat mold anywhere in the literature. Some people have report, you know, publish some case reports and some studies like that, but nothing to really be compelling for a a dramatic move in the healthcare system. So I think that's one of the things you should know as you walk in the healthcare system uh, with that issue. Now, um, everyone knows that there can be some issues with mold, uh, that people can get mold-related illnesses, but also has really caused some um, significant litigation. Um, And uh, so there's been some hesitation to really jump on board with some some political reasons with it as well so it's a combination of all these factors but at the end of the day what happens is that there's a lot of people that have their own immune uniqueness that makes them sensitive to mold and then when they get sensitive to mold they start to have a whole list of inflammatory symptoms and reactions um, that are very diverse and then they tend to be very frustrated and and want to figure out what to do with it now remember one of the key concepts is that not everyone's going to respond to mold the same way. So you could have someone that walks into a very damp, old building with mold all over the place, and they're fine. Someone else walks in the first two minutes and their asthma flares up and their eyes get teary and they feel sick and they they don't feel well for the rest of the day just from a, a short exposure. So same building. Um, same environment, but completely different reactions. So that's one of the things that is a part of the concept of mold. There's also another thing that's important to understand. There's a difference between mold and mildew. Um, mold is typically green, black, and and uh, there's actually not all species of mold um, produce uh, mycotoxins that significantly impact human health. So even some of the black and green mold that's out there isn't necessarily toxic. Some species are, that's why testing is important. And then mildew is more like gray and white, and it also smells. So, like if you go to a, like an old building that has mildew on it, uh, you know it'll smell funny and be, f- and, and you know not be pleasant to be in. But it's not necessarily toxic mold or releasing these mycotoxins that are very damaging. So the ones we're really worried about are the the black mold and different species that are involved with that, um, like Aspergillus and Stachybotrys and so forth that really can cause some reactions now um i can tell you just from a practitioner and i think all practitioners that work with chronic diseases will absolutely have patients come in and and tell you know tell us that i was healthy i was healthy and moved into this building there was a timeline and i got really really sick and they came in and tested mold and then and then i felt a lot better Another common thing we hear in medical histories is um you know i feel better when i leave my house i feel better when i travel i went on a vacation for two weeks and never felt better came back home started to crash slowly day by day those are all indications that there could be a mold related issue so we know that you know mold uh, can grow and damp we know buildings have been exposed to humidity and, and water and then you can have these species grow and that can create some some health problems now there was a very interesting study that was published in Frontiers Immunology back in 2017, it was a Finnish study. And what they did is they monitored um, two different cohorts. One was a family of uh, nine people that lived in a mold infested building and felt like that was fine, that there was no health issues and they wanted to stay there. And they agreed to be monitored uh, for the next uh, a few years. And then they also did the same thing to an old, uh, school building uh, with 50 students and 30 teachers and they wanted to look at their symptoms and get a baseline and monitor them over a series of time. And they really found some very interesting things. They found not everyone reacted, some people reacted, but for the most part, you know, they would see people develop this phenomena, which is really important to understand if you're, if you're being exposed to mold, between um, immune exposure to mold and immune reactions to mold versus what's called mold, mold uh, sensitization or mold allergy. So when we get exposed to mold species, uh, and we start to have immunological reactions against them, then those reactions um, produce antibodies, and we can measure those in the blood, and those are called you know, uh, IgG antibodies, for example. And that lets us know that the, the immune system is getting exposed to these toxic mold species, and the immune stem is probably gonna have an inflammatory reaction to them. So it's simple blood test in the clinical setting that can be done to measure that. Now that's different than what the study found is that some of these people then get sensitized and then they get into an IgE reaction. An IgE reaction is causes immediate symptoms and at this point they become primed or what's called sensitized to mold. And some people call this mold allergy where at that point anytime they get exposed to mold they're going to feel sick. So at that for those people they can walk into a building And immediately get sick if there's any kind of mold spores. And typically, it's old, damp buildings they walk into. And that seems to be an ongoing, permanent thing because they've changed their immune response where they have this uh, IgE immediate immune response shift in their immune system. So, you know, one of the things, you know, when people have reactions to mold in a clinical setting, we're always thinking about okay, well, is this person just have some exposure like IgG or they have IgE? So if I have a patient that comes in, for example, and they tell me that they've really gone sick and they really think there's mold in their house and they've actually had to test it and they can see it visibly, you know, my first question is, are they having an IgG or IgE reaction? And and that would let me know how to determine their prognosis down the road. So some people just have some reactions and some people then develop full-blown, full-blown sensitization to mold. And unfortunately, the ones that develop full-blown sensitization to mold, they seem to have this ongoing issue, ongoing, and the best you can do is to try to calm down their inflammatory response, try to improve their immune tolerance, and, and hope that they can react for I'll get into some treatment applications before I take some questions. Now, the other thing I, I wanna talk about is, besides um, the Spanish study, is that what they found is that if they kept people in these mold-infested periods, that was one of the key factors, these mold-infested buildings, that was one of the key factors where they actually shift from IgEG to IgE. Now, um, you know, one of the things to uh, also add that it's important to understand when you look at mold research and mold mechanisms There's a mechanism of of pulmonary epithelium permeability. Um, It's called, you know, you can simplify it. It's kind of like leaky gut, but it's leaky lung syndrome. They don't call it leaky lung syndrome in the literature, but it's basically the same concept of um, leaky gut. So let me explain uh, and correlate how these two things work. So we know that when people get chronic inflammation in the gastrointestinal tract, their intestinal tight junction proteins break up. Now these are all occludin type junctions, and uh, yeah, undigested food particles go through, and that creates a significant inflammatory reaction. And then people that have, like for example, genetic susceptibility to some disease like celiac, if they get exposed to gluten, they get serious just destruction of their intestinal barrier, they get leaky gut, and then they, perpetuate autoimmune diseases over a period of time um, as an established model in the literature right now. Now, we also know that uh, there's people that don't have to have celiac disease, but they just get exposed to chronic foods and chronic inflammation in their gut, or they have an inflammatory bowel condition, and they also get intestinal permeability, and they start to react to food proteins, and all of a sudden they're reacting to to all these food proteins. Well, similar mechanisms take place in the lung and within the lung barrier. So there's a pulmonary epithelium barrier, and the pulmonary epithelium there has also zonulin proteins that keep the epithelium tight together. They also have proteins called clodins. And there's different clodin versions like clodin 4, 5, 6, 3. But the, all they do is they, they just keep the intestinal epithelium junction of the lungs together. Mm-hmm. So things like mycotoxins, just the things like air pollution, things like cigarette smoke tend to break these junctions down or any inflammatory mechanism that injures the lung epithelium can break down these barriers and now the person has these barriers open so it's possible that people that get chronic exposure to mold that's releasing mycotoxins have this they breathe this in this inflammatory response starts to break down their pulmonary tight junctions and as these pulmonary tight junctions break down they open up and now they become extremely sensitive to things in the air, they start to get asthma, they start to get systemic inflammatory responses because what they're breathing is now causing an, an immune response. So in the pulmonary epithelium, we also have dendritic cells and different types of immune cells that then trigger an inflammatory response that becomes systemic. There's a whole host, of, whole host of symptoms that people get with um, these lung barriers open up. So just as the gut barrier can open up and promote autoimmune disease, which has been established in animal models at this point, um, we know that if the lung barrier opens up, it's really the same thing, but instead of getting the exposure from foods, you're getting it from things that you breathe in. So we know that um, chronic exposure to mycotoxins could be a factor, why Some people end up with pulmonary permeability, and when this pulmonary permeability or leaky lung happens just like leaky gut they can develop chronic inflammatory conditions and even develop autoimmune diseases it's not so much from their um, gut barrier but it's from their lung barrier so those are some important um Mechanisms that are involved. Okay, let me move on. So anyways, when you're, when you're looking at mold, by the way, um, when you're looking at these reactions, so this lung barrier breaking down, is very similar to gut uh, these these leaky gut patterns. This is one of the things that happens. Now, um, one of the things that is also clear is that when people start to have these inflammatory reactions in their lungs, some of the most common symptoms are like asthma, difficulty breathing. When they try to work out, they have, they have a hard time um, Recovering, and uh, they may also notice coughing, irritation, and so forth. So, you know, then the question is okay, so this exists, what's out there, and you can test for it. You can also, by the way, measure urinary mycotoxins, and um, most labs will, will measure antibodies for mold, uh, like LabCorp or Quest. Um, some people, uh, if they want to measure mycotoxins, they have to go to a specialty lab. Uh, one of my good friends, uh, Dr. Andrew Campbell, just opened up a, a lab called My Lab. It's something you might wanna check out if you wanna learn about mycotoxin testing and also uh, reactions to mold that way. But the key concept is you can measure um, mold uh, antibodies and mold mycotoxins and then determine what's happening. Now for some people, when they get exposed to these mold spores, they, these mycotoxins get, they breathe these mycotoxins in and these mycotoxins are very resistant to they're, they're very resistant to temperature changes, they're low molecular weight, they hang in there and they cause inflammation, and then they do show up um, in the urine. So people can measure those and see if they're still getting that uh, exposure um, if they're concerned about it. One of the key things about any kind of mold related issue is the environment. You know, As a clinician, you see people sometimes say, well, how do I, what do I take? What nutrition supplement I take? It's not necessarily taking something. If you don't remove your exposure to the mold, you you can't you can't beat it. There's no supplement that's going to counteract that constant mycotoxin exposure. Um, it'd be almost like saying, "I have celiac disease, uh, I still want to eat gluten." Uh, so what supplement can I take to still do that? And that doesn't really work. So the key thing is you have to have ventilation. That's a key factor. And uh, you know, there's a mold remediation contractors out there that deal with uh, um, cleaning up. Uh, damaged buildings, um, and, and uh, they can come into any home and test for air quality and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the key thing is first identifying if that exists. Yeah, if someone has reactions to mold with antibodies, that means the reason is having an inflammatory reaction to, to mold species. And then the, the next question to ask is, has it gone into an allergy or a sensitized state where they're making IgE? That's a whole different set of uh, outcomes. And also, are they producing high amounts of mycotoxins, which are inflammatory mediators Um, that can be involved with that. Now, when you're looking at um, exposure to mold also, uh, and mycotoxins, some people could be in the same building as someone else for many years. They could have one family member or one uh, person a student in an old building that's getting exposed to mycotoxins on a daily basis, and another one, and and they have no symptoms, whereas another one starts to develop symptoms pretty quickly. And one of the concerns with that, with the mechanisms behind that, is um, basically their immune tolerance. And immune tolerance is really a combination of how healthy are your blood-brain barriers, lung barriers, gut barriers, how active are your dendritic cells, what's going on with cells called Treg cells. I did create a program about immune tolerance. Um, If you go to Dr. K News, it's like an online program that talks about that. But let me give you one part of that, which is really important when it comes to mold. And this is specifically to the lung uh, pulmonary barrier. So um, our bodies are constantly getting exposed to different environmental compounds and different pathogens and different things to, impact uh uh, or cause inflammation in our surface so air pollution cigarette smoke mycotoxins they're all degrading our pulmonary barrier to some degree so we have some 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 breakdown of the barrier but what's also important is how quickly you can regenerate that system so antioxidants are a really key part of that so um you know there's sometimes situations where someone's reacting to mycotoxins but they can't leave the environment um uh, for whatever the reason may be uh So you you really want to, at the very least, in those situations, improve their immune tolerance, but uh, for sure try to improve the integrity of their pulmonary barrier. So things like vitamin A um, are really critical to help the pulmonary epithelium um, uh, regenerate. Antioxidants, all types of antioxidants can be useful to prevent mycotoxin destruction of the uh, of the barrier. Um, so high amounts of different types of mycotoxins like acai extract, pomegranate extract, those types of things are important. Glutathione, uh, things that raise glutathione like um, an acetylglutathione or actually taking things like liposomal glutathione can all be effective strategies mm-hmm. to try to uh, provide antioxidants to protect barrier breakdown if you are, if a person is getting exposed to, mycotoxin exposures and so forth. Um, now, there's some, and I know people are gonna ask about clinical strategies and what to do, so I'm gonna finish this last section here and take some questions, but I wanna talk about clinical strategies to, to consider when you, when you do have exposure to mold. So the very first thing is if you have exposure to mold and you feel that mold has made you sick, is ask the question, are you constantly being exposed? or are you a person that is now being sensitized to mold and have IgE reactions, where no matter uh, what room you go into, or I mean, what damp building you go into, you're gonna have a reaction. And those are two different expressions of how mold impacts uh, people. So one is just causes an acute inflammatory reaction, but it hasn't been sensitized into IgE, or mold so-called allergy, or or ongoing chronic mold sensitivity, um, or not. Now, ultimately, despite which form you have, you have to really avoid damp environments. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I use in my patients is I use something called a hygrometer, which measures indoor humidity. And for people that are sensitized to mold, you really wanna get a hygrometer and measure the humidity of your rooms, and you definitely want it less than 50%. And if you can't get your room less than 50%, if you have a sensitivity to mold, you should get a dehumidifier. And the dehumidifier can help mm-hmm reduce that humidity, because that humidity will trigger people that have this IgE reaction to mold to have this uh, uh, aggravated response. The other key thing is to really have healthy ventilation in your rooms, that's really critical. And then if you do have any concerns with mold or have mold issues, you definitely want to get an air purifier, and it has to be a HIPAA filter to really be able to to remove um, mycotoxin compounds. So a uh, certified HIPAA air filter, uh, dehumidifier, hygrometer all things you can use to, to reduce your immune reactions if you if you've already developed mold sensitivity. Now, in the field of nutrition, there are lots of different clinical approaches, and I got to admit that these have not been vetted through clinical trials or have been tested And this is where some of the pushback comes in with people that, um, you know, are looking for what do you mean you're treating mold with nutraceuticals or botanicals and and so forth. And I think this happens a lot because, um, you know, patients need to feel better. And so there's been some strategy and protocols people use, but, you know, we still don't have these clinical trials to show the evidence that these things actually do work. So part of it is anecdotal for the most part. So, when people have mold issues, there's certain natural compounds that seem to have uh, antifungal, anti-mold properties. Things like tea tree oil, things like oregano oil, things like clove, things like thyme. Um, those can all be taken as botanical extracts uh, to kind of support that. They're also what are called biofilm disruptors because as you get injured to your lung epithelium, you start to have these uh, mycotoxin species uh, start to stick together and protect, the, develop a protective film, so you you have a hard time um, getting rid of that. Uh, Uh, inflammatory immune response. So those things are natural uh, compounds that have some properties to support uh, those systems. Sometimes people use what are called binders. Binders are there to kind of bind to the mycotoxins so they can be cleared from the body. Cholestermine is a drug that uh, is really the most powerful one. People have uh, used that in different mold protocols. It's a lipid sequestering uh, anti-cholesterol drug that was used a long time ago. It binds to bile acids, but it also binds to different toxins. But from a nutritional point, things like zeolite, things like activated charcoal, there's various clays out there that people use as a binder as an attempt to get these things out. Um, supporting the pulmonary system with lots of antioxidants like glutathione. Um, nutritional support for the lung barrier, vitamins A, D, and K, they're all important. and then. Uh, you know, a strategy to really improve immune tolerance, and the strategy to improve immune tolerance, I, I I call the 3D immune tolerance program. This is a term that I use for the program I developed. It's called diversify. It's the 3Ds stand for diversify, which is how to diversify your microbiome. The more diverse bacteria you have, the better tolerance you have uh, in your overall immune response. Um, downregulate, how to downregulate downregulate uh, activation of dendritic cells and T cells that causes a response. Um, and distinguish how to really improve your immune system's ability to distinguish the pathogen or not. There's also some people that um, have had some success with using uh, mold desensitization therapy where they give uh, little small injections of, uh, of different mold uh, compounds to start to get their immune system to respond to it. There's been some success with that as well. You can also use Nebulizer to breathe in oils like uh, tea tree oil or sea salt to help try to get some of the anti mold properties into your lung system. You can you can use different uh, essential oils. They release the oils in the air.
0: Oh. Downstairs that can't I can't remember what it's called. Someone can help us. But uh, you
2: put those, uh, you know, you put the oils in, and it just releases in the air. Uh, those are those are very useful. So those are like the basic concepts between how you can how you can uh, do things to support mold. So I, I try to cover the basics for you, and, and I know those are the typical questions that people ask. So let me try to go through and take any questions that people have, and uh, and see if I could.
0: Someone's asking me the exact name of
2: the meter. I don't know what meter that is. Um, the exact name of the meter to measure humidity. Mm-hmm. It's it's spelled H Y G R O, M E T E R, and you can get this hygrometer at Amazon. they they're like. 15, $20, not very expensive. You can put one in every single room if you want, um, but that's one way to measure humidity. And if those, again, if those levels are above 50%, you, and you have sensitivity to mold, you definitely want to get a dehumidifier to decrease the humidity, so your um, reactions are or or uh, less are, uh, suppressed. Okay.
0: Um, can you please repeat the name of the new mold lab?
2: Yes, the new mold lab is called MyMycoLab, M-Y-M-Y-C-O-L-A-B. The director is uh, Dr. Andrew Campbell. He's a brilliant environmental uh, medicine uh, physician, and uh, you can just go to their website, which I believe is MyMycoLab.com, to find more information if you're interested in that. Question in from Savannah, do specific binders work better for specific mycotoxins? Well, the whole concept of binders uh, for specific mycotoxins has not really been investigated. And I think with everything in natural medicine, when you start to use them, then practitioners will have different preferences. and um, um, But it, there's no clear evidence one works better than the other. So you'll have some practitioners will love something like zeolite, some will love activated charcoal, some will some will prefer, various binders.
0: It's a diffuser. Shane Sedman chimed in and said, it's a diffuser.
2: Thank you. The the diffuser, <laughs> by the way, where we couldn't remember uh, the name of the, how this essential oil gets into the air is a diffuser. So, thank you, Shane. <laughs> thank you. I think we have our own mold related <laughs> brain toxicity.
0: It's all these. Oh,
2: okay. Sorry. Diffuser. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Um, next question here. I found pomegranate seeds seem to break up biofilm. Is that accurate?
0: Seems to. Who's that from? Mark Will.
2: So Mark asked, um, he found pomegranate seeds break up biofilm, is that accurate? I'm not sure if pomegranate seeds are biofilm disruptors, but if they are biofilm disruptors, um, that's new to me. But pomegranate is a very powerful antioxidant and it can preserve integrity of uh, barriers uh, as an antioxidant, lung barrier, gut barrier, and so forth. So uh, it's definitely one of the things to consider if you're getting exposed to environmental chemicals is, is a really powerful antioxidant. And, and pomegranate extract is one of my favorites. I think it's just uh, such a powerful superfood, super botanical, and very, very high uh, what they call orc values for antioxidant activity. Okay. Uh, Katya, do saunas help? Katya asks, do saunas help? Um, you know, I don't know uh some people that are really sick they go to saunas they they just completely crash um they can't handle it there's there's a significant impact of stress that happens to the immune system when you drastically change shepherd or chew i mean theoretically you know the concept being if you sweat you're getting rid of toxins and so forth but at the same time you know the challenge of a significant change in temperature does impact thermoregulation systems. And some people that are chronically sick just don't feel well with it. And some people say, well that's just an immune, you know, toxic reaction, they're getting all this stuff out so they feel worse, uh, maybe not. Maybe it's just that the Changes in, drastic changes in temperature um, have a direct impact on the and immune system and immune regulation is a serious thing and you can actually tax your immune system and your function and your antioxidant reserves when you actually do crash. So I really am not a big believer in thinking that you should go in a sauna and then completely crash and that's that's okay because that's how you're getting rid of toxins. Um, I really think that at that point, for some people that are really sick, um, getting into a very hot um Sauna and completely crashing is going to actually shut down their antioxidant function and the reserves. So, it may not be the best idea. You might want to try other types of approaches. But the general concept in the world of natural medicine is um, that, you know, when you have toxicity, you want to obviously sweat as much as possible, have healthy amounts of bowel elimination, um, urinate. Uh, health, you know, health, you, you obviously want to sweat, uh, have normal balance and and have healthy um, hydration so you can urinate and get all these compounds out. So this is basic concepts of human uh, toxicology.
0: Okay, Erin asks, is the urine test accurate? My functional med provider is inspecting mold is an issue for me, but she wants to... She wants our environment tested first.
2: So the question is, is urinary mycotoxins accurate? So this is actually a really good question. There is possibility that you may not actually have mycotoxins that are significantly um, in your system causing them, but you may have just been exposed to food particles that have some mycotoxins that show up on lab tests, so it's not really toxic mold you're breathing, but there's you know, there's some degree of mycotoxins on foods that stored um, in bins, or things like grapes, things like even coffee beans. Um, Things like corn, things like wheat, anything that's stored in bins may have an impact uh, on uh, changing those those mycotoxin levels. So you really want to look at the, the history and, and, and the big picture and, 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 and see what's useful to you. But there are some concerns about uh, urinary mycotoxin accuracy and how much of those mycotoxin readings are really just from some exposure to foods versus, um, you know, mold that... Is that they're breathing in from, let's say, their environment. Okay.
0: Um, Tiffany, if you test positive on a prick test for mold allergy, is that IgG or IgE? Does it mean you have an immediate reaction?
2: So the question is, if you test for a pinprick mm-hmm. uh, from, from, from mold allergy, is that IgG or Ig? Well, all skin tests, all skin prick tests are IgE. So if you react with a skin pin prick test, that means you have IgE activity, which means you may have um, the sensitized immune system now to, uh, to uh, mold. And that would be probably one of the best. Uh, therapies that you may be a candidate for is to consider where they do mold desensitization therapy with little injections of the diluted antigen. You still want to improve your immune tolerance. You still want to build your antioxidant reserve. You still want to reduce your, at that point you definitely want to reduce your exposure to um, any mold. And you really want to make sure that you check the humidity of your house and have a HIPAA hair filter, but the skin print test, skin prick test will be an IgE reaction.
0: Okay. Um, so Mari says I have Hashimoto's and mold and SIBO. Do you see them being related? And if I clear the mold, will my Hashimoto's get
2: better? The question is: I have Hashimoto's. I have mold exposure, exposure and, SIBO. and SIBO. Yeah. And if you clear the mold, will your Hashimoto's improve? Yeah. Don't know. You never know. So clinically, you know, um, you know, when you look at most patients that have chronic autoimmune disease. Um, they they have multiple things happening like that. So obviously, uh, if you have mold exposure, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's an ongoing issue. I mean, for all of us have some green mold exposure. The question would be, do you have a immune, like, do you currently have antibodies to mold? Or are you still getting exposed on a daily basis? And, or do you have like an IGE response to mold? Those are all the key factors. Now, uh, Mold exposure uh, itself can be a trigger because it's creating these mycotoxins that that are causing an inflammatory response, but it doesn't necessarily mean you get chronic illness. So remember, the people that get exposed to mold that are never the same afterwards are the ones that get sensitized and then develop these reactions. So if you have Hashimoto's, you could be the one that has um, just an acute reaction because you're getting exposed to mycotoxins that are causing the inflammatory response, or you may have progressed into those that are sensitized, have an IgE reaction that are always sensitive to mold. And if that's the case, then you have to constantly deal with mold to calm down the expression of your immune system so you don't flare up your Hashimoto's. Mm -hmm. If you just had some exposure, you don't have an IgE reaction yet. Then the key thing is really to um, remove your source and, See if you can improve the integrity of your pulmonary barrier by raising your antioxidant levels and glutathione levels and vitamin A levels and and just making sure you have a good HIPAA air filter and are, are breathing good quality air so you can let your lung barrier heal. And I think with autoimmune disease, there's been such an emphasis on the gut. And, uh, you know, the the lung barrier is a key factor. And also, I would say, in some recent studies that have been published with uh, the, the – um, prevalence of the outbreak of COVID-19 they found in areas that have the highest amounts of air pollution, like Paris, like uh, New York, um, like different regions of Italy, um, where there's so much smoking, so much uh, car exhaust and and such poor quality air that they're seeing these outbreaks. So there are some researchers that are theorizing that a potential mechanism may be um, how people react to, for example, the current coronavirus strain is that uh, if their barriers are are compromised, that the they can they can end up having greater outbreaks in those regions with with people that have those those air pollution issues. It, someone's asking about
0: Doctor Shoemaker react, and I'm trying to find the response
2: Do you know Dr. Schumacher. Yeah, Doctor Shoemaker has his own protocol for treating mold. Uh, I think he's helped a lot of people um, with mm-hmm. that. Um, it's definitely something to look into if you have a mold illness. Um, and uh, he's 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 doing some good work to try to get some information published about what he's been doing. So um, so those are things those are things to definitely um, um, you know look into if you're you're dealing with him. It's Question here is what glutathione source do you use? Um, so when you look at glutathione, there's different types of glutathione sources out there. We actually made a whole video on glutathione. Uh, I personally prefer a liposomal a form of acetylglutathione that seems to have the best approach, but sometimes if you're just trying to raise glutathione, the easiest way to do it is just to use things like N-acetyl and acetylcysteine.
0: What is the best mold test? After how long How long after exposure can tests still find do you have reactions to mold? Months, years, et
2: cetera? For so the question is how long do, how accurate are mold antibody testing and for what, what period of time? Asks,
0: what is the best mold test and how long after exposure can tests still find that we have reactions to mold?
2: So, so reactions to mold, if you have, if uh, you have reactions to mold, if you have, um, Antibody productions. Antibody productions typically last somewhere between two to, to six months. So any exposure to mold in a two, two to six month window would be would be something you can look at. Iggs is just telling you that you're having a acute response, your immune system is reacting to mold. IgE is telling you that um you were sensitized to mold. And uh I think, for the most part, as far as when you're looking at these antibodies, you're going to get exposed to mold all the time. So you're going to, you know, um, you're going to be able to tell if your immune system is reacting to them or not, and that's the key thing. So we, the other thing to point out is. Um, if you do feel sick and you are having these reactions, you do definitely want to check the air in your home and have someone that does mold remediation come in and check the air quality and see if there's any areas. Obviously, sometimes it's very obvious because you can smell mold in certain certain rooms if you have any um, water damage. But um, I don't think you have to be too concerned about the length of time with the antibodies. You'll be able to see them because we're, we're, you know we typically get exposed all the time. Okay.
0: Arlie, what about red infrared therapy instead of sauna?
2: Um, red infrared therapy versus sauna, um to be honest with you, I I don't have a good answer for you. You know, I hear about that myself and uh, I have some patients that that swear by it and some patients that feel like it hasn't done anything for them. I think there could be some uniqueness of if, if that kind of therapy works or not. There surely aren't any studies published on it. So you know, we don't, we don't have that to count on to look for. So all we have is some anecdotal information one person to another. I don't have enough experience with it myself to give you a personal opinion on it, so that's the best I can do to answer your question with that.
0: Okay. Um, is there any other biotoxin similar to mold toxin? Boris is asking.
2: Are there similar other biotoxins? Is
0: any other biotoxin similar to mold toxin?
2: Yes, there are other similar biotoxins similar to mycotoxin. Um, the most common one is just what's called lipopolysaccharide. This is gram-negative bacteria produces this biotoxin, uh, and it's one of the main reasons why intestinal permeability can make many people very, very sick. So when people have intestinal permeability, um, the gram negative bacteria that's, uh, that takes place, especially if you have dysbiosis, is released in the bloodstream and then um, this biotoxin binds to what are called toll-like receptors and specifically toll-like receptor four and that tends to cause a systemic inflammatory response throughout the body. So mycotoxin could also bind, they also bind to what are called toll-like receptors which are um, little receptors on immune cells and when they bind to them, it triggers this this inflammatory cascade. That's why the symptoms of uh, any kind of biotoxin or mycotoxin um, exposure it causes a diverse list of symptoms because it really turns on inflammation throughout the body. So depending on your pre-existing inflammatory state, you may get different um, symptoms when you get exposed to a mycotoxin or a biotoxin because it basically adds fuel to the fire. So if you already if like if you've had a brain injury and you've had some inflammation in your brain and you have some prime glial cells, you know, for you you get a systemic inflammatory response, it may really shut down your brain function. For someone else, they have RA or they have early rheumatoid arthritis, they get inflammatory response and their joints start to hurt from the mold exposure. For someone else, they had a you know knee injury that never really healed. And for them, it just really causes significant pain there. Um, so uh, Biotoxins or mycotoxins really just turn on um, toll-like receptors uh, throughout the entire immune, throughout the entire body and different immune cells, and then you just create inflammation. But one of the key things that clinically uh, de- determines symptoms is where is the inflammation before the exposure. Okay, uh,
0: Jonalyn, how can we improve lung barrier?
2: How do you improve lung period i talked about that a little bit earlier the best ways to improve lung barrier is to have good air quality so you definitely you know i think everyone should invest in a good uh, air filter air purifier in their home especially in their bedroom where they're constantly breathing air that's always a good idea and and then from a nutraceutical perspective vitamin a is really critical for for the lung epithelium and uh, just a high rich source of antioxidants uh, in your diet, or even if you want to take antioxidants preventively, nutraceutically wise um, the whole list of things from from pomegranate to pine bark to acai to resveratrol to turmeric, they all have very good antioxidant properties, um, so those are the key, and then again glutathione, uh, whether it's liposomal glutathione or things like N-acetylcysteine are pretty good strategies to improve the lung barrier. One of the things I also do um, just, to, just to in my office is uh, I have patients take in several deep breaths <gasps> like that over and over again. And I have them do about five of those and I want to see if they cough. And sometimes when people have some compromise of the barrier as you kind of vacuum particles in and across the lung barrier, if there's any kind of inflammation there you start to get a coughing reflex. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not the best test. It's just you know when you don't really have a lot of good laboratory markers, um, it's just one way to suspect it. So obviously the exposure to mold and a timeline when they got sick would be the best scenario. And it's pretty likely that if they are having reactions to mycotoxins, that their pulmonary barrier is going to be compromised to some degree.
0: Okay, Selena, what is the best way to downregulate T cells slash dendritic cells in situations where mold is a problem?
2: What is the best way to downregulate? T cells and dendritic cells and mold is an issue. It's a issue. Yeah. Um, so, the best ways are really to, first of all, decrease your exposure. And then, secondly, these dendritic cells are very also dependent upon vitamin A. There are retinoic receptors that uh, make their efficiency more efficient when there's high amounts of vitamin A. And really the other key thing is to A and D also are critical for A and D are critical for the, regu- for the dendritic cells and regulatory T cells and really trying to improve uh, diversity of that system. Uh, once again, I made an entire um, online program called the 3D Immune Tolerance Program that you can take a look at too. And I go into all the mechanisms and research in much, much greater depth, if you really have interest in, in, in those strategies for immune tolerance. But I think I've covered some of the most fundamental things in this talk so far. So you don't need to buy it. It's just something there, if some people are interested in, in uh, learning at it, but it, it is a good way. I also have a free immune tolerance program on our site called Dr. K News, which uh, can be useful as well.
0: Okay, Jackie asks, what are good biofilm disruptors?
2: So what are good biofilm disruptors? So for the most part, uh, the common things that are biofilm disruptors are things like garlic extract, wormwood, black walnut, uh Burberry, uh Uversi, olive leaf extract I think is probably one of the, the the best ones. But those are all typically you know, all basically biofilm disruptors. So all of those, so any one of those could have some impact on breaking down the biofilm.
0: Okay. Um, can you, Dee Dee? Can you comment on the C four A serum test in diagnosing mold?
2: Can I comment on the C four
0: A serum test in diagnosing mold?
2: Oh, I think I think uh, the C four. I think you're talking about the complement protein test to, to diagnose mold. Yeah, this is terrible stuff. there's such bad science out there, you know. Uh, just because you have a raise of any of the CD4 proteins or complement proteins has no specificity for mold. It just means your immune system is getting exposed to something. You typically will see activation of things like complement proteins when people are dealing with uh, mycotoxins, but it's not specific for mold. But it is so it's a finding you see with people that have exposure to any kind of uh, environment, any kind of pathogen, or any kind of uh, immune activation pattern. Um, complement proteins are kind of like landmines. And there's different complement proteins: C1, C2, C3, C4. There's no specificity for any complement protein for any kind of pathogen, so that's why, um, you know, you can't use it to diagnose it. But if you do have someone who has exposure to mold, and you look at their complement proteins, whether it's C3 or C4 or whatever the protein may be, you can you can use that as a baseline, and then as they reduce their exposure and improve their immune integrity and their immune health then you can you can use this you can, you can look at that to see if the complement activity is starting to calm down which would be a clue to that uh, their immune system is not act being as activated from those responses and the good thing about the complement proteins are the complement proteins immediately change um, when they're not reacting to a uh, pathogen whereas antibodies you know will stay elevated for many months um, so they're not as reliable to determine if the immune response is, is improving with any kind of uh, strategies to remove the exposure and to improve the immune system. So the couple proteins do have their place, but they're not used for diagnosis. They're used to kind of determine some degree of immune reactivity when someone has already been established to have any kind of mold issues.
0: Okay. Susan asks, can you repeat the 3Ds in the 3D program?
2: The 3Ds in the 3D program. <laughs> um, so let me let me add to that. Um Something that I've been working on for a very long time is something called immune tolerance. And one of the things I found with patients that have autoimmune diseases and have chronic inflammatory issues is there's, uh, you know, there's really this this dysfunction that's been published in the literature is loss of tolerance or or immune tolerance. And then my next question throughout my career is what is causing people to lose their immune tolerance and how do you reestablish that? And I came up with that there's really three D's. are involved with what's published on there one is to diversify and diversify really has to relate with your microbiome so the more diverse your microbiome is the healthier your reaction is to uh, whether to react or not react to environmental triggers so um, diversity comes from eating lots of diverse foods but you know your diversity can also change from taking lots of antibiotics your diversity can also change from Um, sedentary lifestyles. So lots of things impact microbiome diversity. But the goal is to really try to improve your gut diversity as much as possible. Uh, The second D is to downregulate. So downregulate means that when you have someone who has an activated immune response, their immune cells are upregulated, they're overreacting. So things like dendritic cells or sample particles or compounds or mycotoxins or biotoxins or dietary proteins, they tend to be overzealous. So you know, the goal is to try to calm those down, and then uh, uh, the other key thing is distinguish. One of the most important parts of tolerance is something called regulatory T cell function, and regulatory T cell function helps to uh, determine what kind of immune response you have or not response with um, uh, a trigger. So the three Ds stand for diversify, distinguish, and down mm-hmm. I've also read articles about this. Uh, Dr. K News. If you want to learn more about um, immune tolerance and dietary nutritional approaches to that, Dr. K News is drknews.com. Okay. And then someone
0: asked, can you clarify, mycopolysaccharides?
2: Maybe they didn't understand you. I don't. I don't. Oh, it's not mucopolysaccharides. It's lipopolysaccharides. Um, So let me clarify that. The question is, can I clarify lipopolysaccharides? Yes. So you know, bacteria in your gut produce compounds too. And these compounds are, um, you know, postbiotics. And these are called poly, and these postbiotics uh, are classified in a group called polysaccharides. There's some polysaccharides that really help our immune function, and there's some polysaccharides which really cause inflammation in the body. So for example, there's some research that shows if we have um, healthy gut bacteria. Some of the bacterial species in our gut produce something called uh, poly, uh, lipopolysaccharide A (LPSA). And LPSA calms down inflammation throughout our body. It even has been shown in animal studies to regulate autoimmune flare-ups. And it's one of the benefits of having good bacteria, because with good bacteria, produce these postbiotics called LPS. However, there's also, you know, when we term, in a simplistic model, as adverse bacteria. Uh, and or uh, conditions of dysbiosis, when when someone doesn't have enough fiber in their diet, and all they're eating is sugar and uh, unhealthy foods, their back, their microbiome ecology changes, and they produce bacteria that produces um, their postbiotics that are actually lipopolysaccharides that cause inflammation, and those polysaccharides that cause inflammation can actually get into our bloodstream, especially when we have intestinal permeability, and that's called endotoxemia. So there's a lot of research in the immunology literature of endotoxemia from intestinal permeability causing inflammatory uh, reactions all throughout the body, whether it's brain inflammation, cardiovascular inflammation, um, joint inflammation. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of that information that's, that's been researched and published now, which is very uh, interesting.
0: Okay. okay. Um, Kate, did you say NAC for increase, increasing glutathione? What's that? Kate asked, did you say to use NAC for increasing glutathione?
2: Yes, you can use NAC, N-acetylcysteine glutath- N-acetyl to raise glutathione. Typical doses are around 1,500 to 3,000 milligrams, so those are things that can be effective. Okay. Um,
0: Boris, what is the best... Inflammatory? No, sorry. Uh, okay, Tiara asks a lot of people ask this: um, If someone has been diagnosed with mold and SIBO and Candida, other symptoms, um, is it necessary to clear the mold before treating other things?
2: So the question is: If someone has like multiple conditions, like SIBO, Candida, candida you know, should you should you treat and the mold? Mold? Should you treat the mold first? Um, you know honestly, there is, there's no clinical priority when it comes to real clinical scenarios. you got to determine what's there. I mean the key thing with mold is if you're getting constantly exposed, that's a real issue. If you're constantly being exposed to mycotoxins and you have uh, immune reactions to those and you have antibody elevations to those molds mold species and you have mycotoxin levels that are elevated or compound proteins that are elevated, that's an ongoing trigger for inflammation and chronic disease promotion. So that may be one of the things to, to be aware of. I will also, warn you that there are a bunch of people that are so-called mold experts mold doctors and it's great that people specialize in something but the problem is when you sometimes see some practitioners specialize on something is that um, everything in the world is now mold so so they just you know it's the All you have is a hammer, everything's like a nail. And they look at every chronic disease as being mold-related. You see the same thing with people that are experts in Lyme disease. You see the same thing that people that are just focused on leaky gut or whatever the, the situations are. So um, that's another key thing to be aware of when you're when you're when you're looking into the healthcare system. Chances are, if you go to a mold specialist doctor, there's a very high probability that despite your chief complaints, you're going to be diagnosed as mold as your health problem issue. So um, be aware of that as well. Okay.
0: Okay, okay, so Dee Dee asks, she brought your Why Isn't My Brain Working book, and she's looking forward to reading it, but it's in 2013, are there any updates according to new research that you would
2: DD asked, that Dee Dee asked, she read in my book, Why Is My Brain Working? Oh, bought the book, hasn't read it yet, but are there any updates? Yeah. Most information in Why Is My Brain Working is still up to date and accurate. Um, there's over a thousand peer-reviewed references. So the only thing that's not mentioned in that book that I think a lot of research has come out since 2013 is how important um, intermittent fasting and fasting can be for the brain. More and more research has shown that that's one of the key ways to have a neuroprotective effect, and we don't really talk about in that, in that in the book. So we also have learned that Um, ketogenic diets where people get into ketosis also have a very significant impact on brain inflammation we used to just think it was a critical to use for an efficient energy source for seizures but there's been some really good research that shows that actually uh, when your body goes into a ketogenic state that you you produce ketones that actually have an anti-inflammatory effect in the brain and that's really really exciting to hear and then this is the the reason where intermittent fasting comes in and, and it doesn't really matter if it's Every other day fasting, or uh, eighteen six fasting, where you have eighteen hours of fasting and six hours of eating, or or extend fasting, those mechanisms produce something called autophagy, where you clear out debris. So I think if there's anything missing from the brain book, that's that a lot of research has shown since that since that book was published, that would be it. Outside of that, everything else is pretty. Um, solid even even with uh, new research that's come in, and uh, it's still a, a very valid book to understand uh, relationships um, that are involved with the brain. So that's uh, why isn't my brain working. I wrote that book, and then that actually led me to develop my first online program, which is called Save Your Brain Program, because a lot of people that were pushing the book you know, they got the book, and it was like a huge brick. And they're like, "I can't go through all this. My brain's not working." So that actually, what 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 decided, what forced, what actually uh, motivated us to create an online program called Save Your Brain. So I, I put together a program where I go into the key concepts of that book over a six-week period. Each week, teaching how to implement different lifestyle strategies in order of importance um, to really implement some of those concepts in the book. So if you're interested in, in that, uh, that's also on drknews.com.
0: How to test for endotoxemia?
2: How to test for TLR four? TLR okay. So how to test for endotoxemia and TLR four? Mm-hmm. So you, so TLR four is a receptor. You can't really test for for that. All you can do is measure for um, endotoxemia. You can measure things called lipopolysaccharide levels. Gram negative lipopolysaccharides. That's done through a blood test. Uh, in my in my practice, I use um, Cyrex Array two, which measures tight junction proteins, zonulin and occludin, and actually measures the uh, gram-negative lipopolysaccharides that cause activation to toll receptors. So that's one of the ways that that's the way I do it in my office. I just measure Cyrox-ray-2 to look at that. And when we look at like a panel like Cyrox-ray-2 where they look at occludin and zonulin. accludin and zonulin are tight junction proteins that if they break down, you start to show Abnormal levels on, on blood uh, with those with, with antibodies to those proteins, but those proteins also are found in the lung barrier and in the blood brain barrier and in the gut barrier. So when you see you know, occludin zonulin abnormalities or tight junction protein breakdowns and you see LPS, it could be from the gut or it could be from the lungs. They're they're all part of the, the same mechanism.
0: Okay. What lab tests can you have your doctor use to confirm mold?
2: What lab tests can you use? Can your doctor order them? confirm this? So the, the the test we talked about is just IgG or IgM antibody. If you actually go use the, most, the two largest labs in the U.S. or LabCorp and Quest, and they both actually have mold species panels for these antibodies. So they're available in a commercial lab test if you're working with your um, family physician uh, to order them, and they're used to using the conventional laboratories that are out there.
0: Okay, Lee. If you are exposed to mold at work, can wearing an N 95 mask help?
2: I'm not sure if a mask will help. I would I would assume that if you're wearing a, um, a mask, that you may reduce your exposure to to some mycotoxins. But um, that's, that's just an assumption. I would say, I would guess yes, but that's just a guess.
0: Okay.
2: So the question I see here also from Marie is, do you see mold being linked with interstitial cystitis? So a lot of interst- interstitial cystitis is actually autoimmune and inflammatory. And there's, there's been some people that have chronic interstitial cystitis where just they keep getting the flare-ups and you know they keep being tested for reoccurring bladder infections. It's not a bladder infection, it's actually just interstitial cystitis. And there's some research that there's autoantibodies to those target proteins that are, that are causing it. And, and mold, like any other uh, trigger that's inflammatory can activate any autoimmunity. So there's, a, I think, a a large number of women that suffer from chronic interstitial cystitis and they don't really know that it's probably autoimmune that they're having autoimmune reactivities to those uh, proteins, um, uh, like tropomyosin, which is antibodies to the smooth muscles of the bladder. Uh, And then anything, it's like for them, if someone has, for example, autoantibodies to tropomyosin, they get exposed to mold, they can express as their interstitial cystitis flaring up. Mm -hmm. For someone else, they may have antibodies to collagen, um, or arthritic peptide, and they get exposed to mold. and The inflammatory response activates their RA. So that's what that's the key thing about mold too is that it just again adds fuel to the fire because these mycotoxins add to the to this as well. I also want to, a lot of questions here about Dr. Shoemaker's work with chronic inflammatory response syndrome. I just want to say that he's doing great work with that. He has a he has he's really looking at its own syndrome that's associated with mold toxicity. And uh, um, I'm just talking about the basic concepts of mold not associated with any specific syndrome or protocol. And in his scenario, it's not just about the reaction to mold, but it's just the, 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 the inflammatory response that's taking place. So uh, just to make that distinction there.
1: You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare care professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.